This is week five of the spiritual growth experience that we call Life Hurts, God Heals. And this is already the halfway point, the 50% mark of the experience. And I'm sure that lots and lots of you have been reading John Baker's fantastic book, Life's Healing Choices. If you haven't had a chance to pick up a copy, you can do it today. Lots of them out in the lobby for you. And you've been reading, and I hope that you've all been meeting in your small groups, talking with others about how God is using all of this stuff to change you personally. And then I hope that we've all been pressing into the homework through the study guide experience. And we've been doing all of this, and I still hear occasionally, I hear the question, why are we doing a series about life hurting and God healing? Why do we do that? Isn't that sort of peripheral stuff? And it's not really. And we're doing this experience because if we're all honest with each other, we're all messed up. Okay? We're just, let's just be that honest. We are all messed up. And how many of you would say that's absolutely true about the person you're sitting next to right now? Right? And honestly, ah, some of you are a little slow on that deal. Some of us have actually skipped over the messed up level, and we've managed to catapult ourselves to the whacked out level. Some of us just live there, we're whacked out, and the whacked out level is just a smidge below the nut job level. Because there's so much pain, so much hurt, so much damage in our lives. And this, the Journey Church family, is a community of people who carry with us a whole lot of hurt, don't we? When we're honest, we carry with us a whole lot of hurt. And if you count yourself amongst those who have been hurt, I want you to know that this is home for you. This is a safe place. You are surrounded by hurting people, and you've just so happened to join up with a family of nut jobs. Here we are, all of us together. Rick Warren and Doug Fields and John Baker all contributed to my study this week in preparation for this message. As a matter of fact, John Baker, he tells a story about a pet store delivery truck driver. He was driving his pet store delivery truck down the road, and at every single red light that he came to, he would jump out of the cab and he would grab a big old two-by-four from the truck. He would run to the rear of the truck and just wail on the cargo box of the pet store delivery truck. And this went on for a long, long time, an awful lot of stoplights. And everyone who was looking on observed this very strange phenomenon, what, like quizzically, what in the world is that guy doing? Finally, a guy who had been following this truck for some number of blocks, he uh, worked up the courage to pull up alongside the truck driver and ask him, what in the world are you, why are you hitting the cargo box of your truck? And the driver, he exclaimed rather matter-of-factly, as if this sort of thing happened every day, he said, look, this is a two-ton truck. I'm carrying four tons of canaries. That means I've got to keep two tons of canaries up in the air at all times. See? <laughs> There's a few things that are absolutely universally true about us as human beings, all of us, and one of them is that you and I are very, very good at covering up our pain. We're very, very good at covering up our pain. Most of us work night and day. We work overtime to try to hide our pain, to try to hide our hurt. We take very desperate measures to try to keep our hurts, habits, and hang-ups up in the air so that they don't come crashing down and ruin everything about us when they hit the ground. That causes us to develop some very harmful habits, harmful to us, harmful to others. But the, see, those habits, they're just an attempt to quiet and cover and mask the pain, the deep pain that we feel and that we carry with us. And most of the time, we see what we like to call bad habits in ourselves and in other people, and we just chalk it up to like character weakness, right? We say it about ourselves and others. Ah, they just have a bad habit. I just have a bad habit. But I want all of us to think differently about this from today going forward. 
Because those bad habits that all of us have, you and other people, they're not just character weaknesses. Try this on. When somebody, I don't care whether it's you or somebody else in your life, has a bad habit, that bad habit is really just hurt and pain that hasn't been dealt with. Hurt and pain that's just been left to itself to fester, to stew. And here's what happens. When hurt and pain are left unattended, eventually that hurt and that pain squeezes out of some crevice, some crack in our life, and screams out, I'm hurting. Pay attention to me. I'm hurting. And then enters the bad habit, which is the cover-up, the mask, the band-aid over the hurt and the pain. See, the bad habit deal, it's just the disguise. And we do this. All of us do it. We try to skip over dealing with the hurt and dealing with the pain. And we just try to go to work on the bad habit. And I don't care what it is for you. I don't care if it's drinking or spending or surfing the web for more and more stimulating pornography. I don't care if it's shopping, television, lying, overeating, whatever it is for you. The bad habit that we think is the real problem, it will not ever stop screaming out until we get to the bottom of the pain, until we get to the root of the pain. But we do this deal. We're like, I have to stop drinking. The drinking is starting to affect me. I'm starting to my, my job is in jeopardy. I'm drunk all the time. All I can think about is my next drink. I've got to stop. And then we try our hardest to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, muster all the willpower to conquer this bad habit of drinking or whatever it might be. But we don't actually conquer it, see, because all we've done is grab the fruit off the tree and said, all right, I'm going to deal with this drinking deal when what needs to be dealt with is below the water line underneath the surface at the root level, Right? We just replace it with some other bad habit. And the hurt and pain goes on unattended to, undealt with, festering in our lives, screaming out. And we've just swapped one bad habit for another. Yeah, sure, I'm not drinking anymore, but now I'm a compulsive gambler. So we've just traded one bad habit for another. And it's this very sick and very vicious cycle that leaves us consistently on the doorstep of pain and misery. Baker gives a name to it. He calls it the cycle of despair. Page 28 of your study guide, if you're following along, you could turn there, take notes if you're so inclined. And the cycle looks something like this. We start out feeling guilty about our behavior. I'm drunk all the time. All I can think about is the next drink. I shouldn't be thinking like this. And we start to feel guilty for it. We want to get out of the mess, but we can't muster the willpower. We try and try. And after a whole bunch of failed attempts to stop this damaging behavior, whatever it is, then we move over into getting angry. We get angry at ourselves. We get angry at other people. And we're going, come on, I ought to be able to change. I ought to be able to stop all this madness, but we can't. And that anger swells, and that anger festers, and that anger quickly turns to fear. Fear that we're stuck. Fear that we will live out all of our days as a compulsive gambler, or an alcoholic, or an overeater, or whatever it is. We're stuck. That leads to the realization that our hurts, that our habits, and our hang-ups, they're running our lives. And not only are they running our lives, they're ruining our lives. And that fear digresses into actual depression. And we begin to feel sorry for ourselves. We get a case of what my friend calls the PLOMs, the poor little old me's. And we're filled with more and more and more guilt. And so then we just quit the whole deal. And I don't talk, I'm not talking about the bad habit. We quit the trying to quit the bad habit. We hang it up. We say, I can't do this. I can't change. I'm stuck. And we just quit trying. And then the cycle of despair, it just starts all over again. It sounds very, very miserable doesn't it? 
And some of us sitting in this room today are going, that sounds like my life right now. That's me. That's everything I'm living. And it is miserable, isn't it? Lots of us are in that exact place. But the good news from God to you today is that we can make some changes. And we can make some changes by making some choices to move toward God. And by God's grace and in God's power and with God's help, we can change. We can be different, but we're not going to do it by ourselves. That brings us to this week's choice. It's called the commitment choice, and it's like this. We consciously choose to commit my life and my will to Christ's care and control. To make a conscious decision to choose to commit my life and my will to Christ's care and control. And if you've been with us through this whole experience and you've followed through on the first choice of the experience, that was the reality choice, wasn't it? It's where you admitted your need. You realized, I'm not God. I need God. And then from there, you moved to the second choice, which was the hope choice, where you chose to believe that you matter to God and you matter so much to God that you realize that he sent his one and only son. He loves you that much. You matter that much to God and that he does have the power to help you. And if you've made those two choices, you're ready to make this third choice of this experience. It's the commitment choice, where you take an actual, tangible step toward God and you give him your everything. Your everything. You don't reserve anything. You don't hold anything back. You give him your everything. And then you actually, by taking a step toward God, take a step away from your former ways of trying to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do it all by yourself. You let go. You let go. And you run into the care of the arms of Jesus Christ, who said this in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28. Let, let these words wash over you. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. What an invitation from Jesus to all of us today. And who amongst us is not carrying a heavy burden today? All of us are. Jesus says, come to me, lay it at my feet, put it down. You weren't made to carry it. Make this commitment choice. And this choice is absolutely critical. Everything else we're going to talk about from here on out through the next five weeks of this experience build on whether or not you make this commitment choice. And there's a lot of things, though, that keep us from taking that step, from making that commitment to Jesus Christ. And we're going to dump all of these out, and then we're going to come back to the first one. And really, we're just going to fill in all the blanks for those of you who are obsessive enough that you have to have all the blanks filled in, okay? And then we're going to come back and talk about the first. This is page 29 of your study guide. The first one is pride. It's the first barrier, the first obstacle that keeps us from making the commitment choice. We're going to come back to this one. The second one is guilt. We're so guilty about everything that we've done. We're like, no way, God can't love me. He doesn't care about me. There's no way that God would receive me if you knew what I did, Brian. It keeps us, our guilt keeps us from making the commitment choice. Fear also keeps us from making this commitment choice. We're just flat scared. Sometimes we're afraid to trust God, right? Holy cow, trust God? What in the world? I can't see him. I can't touch him. It's a little ooh out there, right? 
Sometimes we're afraid of losing control. We say, I've been running my life for however many years you've been running your life, and I could, I'm scared to death to relinquish any control to anyone except me. We're afraid. Sometimes we're afraid of becoming a religious fanatic, aren't we? Whatever a religious fanatic is, we don't want to be like that, right? We're also worried. What, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? What does it mean to make the commitment choice? What does that entail, and what are the long-term ramifications of that? What are the ramifications of that right now? We worry, and then we also doubt. It often keeps us doubt, keeps us from making this commitment choice. Is there really a God? Did Jesus really, born of a ver- like, come on, how, how doubt keeps us from making this commitment choice? All of those are barriers and obstacles, but the biggest one in my view to us making the commitment choice that keeps us from making the commitment choice is our pride. First and foremost, it's the pride deal. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament, it's in Matthew chapter 5, we discover what are called the Beatitudes, right? It's sort of the thrust of this whole experience. These are eight of the most revolutionary statements that anyone has ever uttered. They're those eight blessed statements. And blessed, remember, is just the poetic or flowery way to say happy. Happy are, blessed are. There's even this really cool sense of Full is the life of people who live this way and who do these things. That's what Jesus is saying. Happy are the people who live this way and do these things. Blessed are the people who live this way and do these things. Full is the life of people who live this way and do these things. And here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, from the Good News translation. Watch this. Happy are those who are what? Humble. Happy are those who are humble. And lots and lots of us sit here today and we're like, what's the big deal about that? Tell me something new. I know that I'm supposed to be humble, we say. But think about the audience that Jesus spoke those words to. They were incredibly prideful people. They were the most spiritually proud people on the planet. He was talking to the Jews, remember. And the Jews, they had their sights set on a Messiah. They were awaiting the Messiah who would come and who would deliver them from all of the oppression that had ever been endured at the hand of so many oppressors. Right? Read the Old Testament of the Bible and see how many different oppressors the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, had to endure. The Jews were rightfully longing for this Messiah who would come and restore them to their rightful position as God's chosen first place. We're first in line. They said, we're first in line. That equates to the reality that when Jesus says these words, the moment they left his lips, happy are those who are humble, that was a crazy teaching for the Jews. Absolutely crazy. It was crazy and puzzling. It could hardly even settle in to their minds. See, happy are the humble, huh? Blessed are the humble. They're going, huh? Your life will be most full if and when you are humble. The Jews, they didn't even want this humility deal. They wanted powerful. Blessed are the powerful. Happy are the powerful. Blessed or happy are the potent. Happy are the great. Happy are the strong. Happy are those who are in control. That's what the Jews were thinking. They didn't want a humble Messiah. They wanted brave heart, right? They wanted Jesus Christ to like put on a kilt and paint his face blue and say, freedom. They were expecting their Messiah to bring about a physical coup d'etat. But what Jesus brought about was a spiritual revolution that started in here and moved outward from there. 
this concept of the happiest way to live life is by being humble was not at all well understood by first century Jews, just like it's not at all well understood by us, a lot of us, right here, right now, today. Or maybe we do understand, this is what happens to me very often, we do understand we're supposed to be humble. We understand what humility means and looks like. We just don't want to be humble. We don't want to get there. Because to us, in America, humility feels mousy, right? Humility feels weak. Humility feels milk toast weasel puke. Whatever that is. Look at your dictionary. Our sons, Josh and Silas, they got a firsthand experience of what it means to be humble just this last weekend on the soccer field. It was the first half. Our team was up by a few goals. This woman walked over from the other team's little area to, and approached our team's coaches. Now, I heard every word of this because I hang out very close to our coaches so that I can render any translation during the game. They don't speak English yet, right? So when the coach says, I kind of have to, okay, no, you're going to, like this. I render translation. It's very handy, and I'm very good at it. (laughs) They just look at me like, what are you doing? What is this? I I don't even know. So I help them. So I'm kind of right there. I hear what this lady says to our coaches. I don't want to see, she said, those two, and she points out onto the field where Josh and Silas were in the general vicinity. I don't want to see those two across the midfield line in the second half. The coach kind of looked at her, and she said, and I'm not just saying that as a parent either. And then she walked away. I was like, that was weird. And our coach, he was scratching his head just a little bit. And because I didn't know what was going on, I, I did what anybody who doesn't know what's going on does. I was like, what, coach, what was that all about? Ah, he said, well, she's on the board of the soccer organization, and she's saying as a board member that we're ahead by too many goals and she wants your boys only to play defense in the second half. I was like, oh, oh okay. I said, well, that seems a little weird to me, but okay. I'll translate it the best I can at <laughs> halftime. So we did. Josh got put in as keeper, his favorite position, and Silas was put in as defender. Um, I don't know the game of soccer very well yet, so like goal box here and then line. So we're defending this goal, this line right in front of them. That's where they put Silas. Send me an email and tell me what that position is, please. I'm learning the game of soccer. Like right there, he's on that last line before the goal we're defending. Defender, does that work? Yeah, mm-hmm. I'll learn. <laughs> so they, that's where they're going to play in the second half. We got them all lined out, all translated, and there they go. Well, it's an interesting thing because for Josh and Silas, in their minds, the goal of playing soccer is to get as many goals as you can for your team to win the game. It's this weird thing. I think they play that way in Africa or something. (laughs) And so Josh, he's stuck in the keeper box in the second half. He can't leave, you know. But Silas, he's, he's just a defender, so he, he can go all over the field. And so he would leave there, and he would, like, be right in front of the other team's goal box. Uh, and, uh, and so we're yelling the whole second half, the coaches and me, get back, Silas, get back. And he would, like, be dribbling the ball, and he would stop, like, mid-dribble, and hear us yelling, get back. And he's, like, looking at us, like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? Like, I'm about to score right here. And uh, am I supposed to take the ball back with me that way? What, how, how's this work? I, I'm about to score. This is Silas, get back, get back. He had no idea what in the world we were doing. After the game, we got in the pickup, and Silas just asked very matter-of-factly, why, Dad, you and Coach yell, get back, get back? And I, I was 
at a loss, right? What, uh, what do I, I think I landed on something like, your team had too many points. And he's like, well, it's a game of soccer. That's what we're supposed to do here. This idea of playing in athletic competition with gentleness and nurturing of the other team, that doesn't feel right. What is this? Building self-esteem. The humility deal, it rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? It doesn't feel right. But get this, as a follower of Jesus Christ, humility is not optional. As followers of Jesus Christ, humility is not optional. We don't get to pick and choose if and when we're humble. It is not an option. In the Bible's original language, that word that's translated into English, humble, it had several different layers or levels of meaning. At one level, it can mean mild or humble. And if we just leave it there, that fits with what a lot of people view as the stereotype of what Christians look like. Many people look at Christians and they just see, well, they're mild and humble people. That means for a whole bunch of people on planet Earth, their view of Christians is that we're weak and we're spineless, we're wimpy, wimpy, and we wear a lot of polyester and exclaim, praise the Lord, at weird places in conversations. And some Christians fit the stereotype, right? But there's a much deeper meaning to this word humble. And this is the meaning that I want you to hold on to and I want you to take home today. In the original language of the sacred text, this word for humble was often used to describe animals that required their naturally wild spirit to be broken by a trainer. Their naturally wild spirit to be broken by a trainer. Now, why did that spirit need to be broken by a trainer? It was so they could be useful. So you get this image that humility is strength under control. You could write that down. Strength under under control. Picture in your mind's eye with me, if you will, a stallion. It's a black stallion. It is an incredibly strong, powerful horse that can run like the wind, that can pull the heaviest of plows through a field, just like a hot knife through butter. That is far from a picture of weakness, isn't it? It's not even close to weak. And Jesus calls this image to mind by challenging us to live the happiest life possible by being humble. Live your life as a tamed stallion, strength under control. That is humility. I want you to know that being humble is so much more than just being a nice guy or being a nice gal and wearing polyester and saying, praise the Lord at just the right time. Being humble is not at all a lack of conviction either. Being humble is actually showing courage under fire. It's strength. It's strong conviction with a very gentle spirit that comes from God's presence in your life. This isn't just something you manufacture within yourself. Okay, I'm going to manufacture humility now, right? It's the spirit of Jesus at work in your life. And this feels funny. It just does. It feels awkward. It rubs us the wrong way. But when Jesus, you think about it, he's delivering the most important sermon he ever gave, the most important sermon ever given, and he carefully includes those words, happy are the humble, we'd better perk up. We'd better pay attention, hadn't we? Why? Because Jesus Christ is calling us, he's inviting us to a different way of living than everyone else is going about it. He's calling us to live at a different level. 
He's calling us to live in a way that transcends what everyone else seems to be settling for and what everyone else seems to be going after. It's the third choice we're talking about today. It requires humility, that we're at the end of ourselves, that we do not have it all figured out. And I want you to know that you can't just get up out of this room at the end of our time together today and go, okay, now I'm going to be humble. And we flip the little humble switch, and now we go like, now I'm humble. Check me out. Look how humble I am, right? Someone said, uh, I used to be, they put it this way, I used to be conceited, and now I'm perfect, right? It doesn't work at all like that. This process of humility, this process of even taking this step of commitment, it requires a two-step process, really. John Baker, he compares it to the strategy that the United States used during World War II to free the Pacific Isles from the grip of the Japanese forces. Phase one was called the softening up period. That's when the United States bombers would fly over the island that was under the control of the Japanese and just bomb the tar out of it. I don't know how else to say it. Bomb the tar out of it from the air. And lots of us right now are living in that exact place. There's all kinds of explosions. There's all kinds of bombs going off in our lives. There's pieces of us scattered all over the place. And you're going right now today, my life ain't working anymore. It hasn't been working for way longer than I'd even like to admit. And if that's you, maybe you're in a place today where you're saying, I do need something that is outside, comes from outside of myself. My hurts and my habits and my hangups, they are actually in this one instance. It isn't very often that your hurts, habits, and hangups help you, but in this one instance, your hurts, habits, and hangups are actually helping you shove your pride right out the door. They're actually breaking you down to a place where you're like, there is no way that I can do this anymore. I'm at the end of myself, the end of my rope, the bottom of the barrel, whatever you want to call it. They're helping you shove your pride right out the door. I do need help. I do want God in my life. I do need God in my life. That's the softening up period, and lots of us are living there right now. And then phase two is called the establishing a beachhead season. After the island had been softened up by the aerial bombers, the United States ground troops would land on the island and they would establish what they called a beachhead. Now that beachhead was probably very small, like postage stamp small in compared to the whole island, but that didn't matter. They would get a foothold. They would get a presence on the island. And just because the United States military established that beachhead, it didn't mean that the island was automatically back under the control of the United States. Far from it, actually. The beachhead was just the start of the deal. But from that little base of operations that they had claimed, they would begin to fight the battles one by one by one by one that needed to be fought in order for the island to change hands, control of the island to change hands. This is a trivial little aside, but interestingly, in World War II, once the ground troops had landed and established that beachhead, we never lost an island, never lost an island. It was just a matter of time before the whole island had been liberated. And it's just like that when we choose to take this third step to make this commitment choice. When you make that commitment choice, God establishes then immediately a beachhead in your life. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is perfect. Far from it, actually. Though it does mean that God's presence in your life is constant and consistent, which means for the rest of your life, he will be about setting you free, 
one battle at a time from your hurts and from your habits and from your hang-ups. Just a little, 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 little at a time. Our friends Philip and Jen Walker, they're going to share with us today the story of how they came to the place of making this commitment choice. And so would you please help me give them a very warm welcome, Philip and Jen. See, we don't have it all figured out yet. Hello, my name is Philip. And my name is Jen, and my story begins in much the same way as others who struggle with hurts, habits, or hang-ups at the beginning. I was born to a young, single mother. My biological father had left before I was born. I loved my mom so much, and I can remember at the tender age of four, really feeling the need to protect her. I felt the weight of the world resting on my little shoulders. When I was three and a half, my mom met my adoptive father. I was relieved and also scared. I was grateful that he was there, and that seemed to ease the pain and sadness that my mom felt, but I was also terrified that if I screwed up, he would leave and my mom would be miserable again. Little did I know at that time that this would be something that I would carry with me for years to come. There were other circumstances that occurred in my childhood and adolescent years that just piled on top of what I call my perfect person syndrome. My life became a breeding ground for anger, control, people-pleasing, and anxiety. When I was in my late teens and early 20s, this anxiety developed into full-blown panic attacks that were completely debilitating. When I met Philip, this pattern continued. I thought, well, now there's a guy that needs my help. Subconsciously, I knew that if I worked at fixing and trying to control him, then I wouldn't have to look at my own mess. I tried so many self-help books and counselor after counselor. I just couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, why I felt so fake, and why my inside didn't match my outside. I was so tired of feeling like two different people. I suffered abuse as a child from somebody outside of my family moved around the country as a kid. When I was 13, I got into trouble with the law, and the state of Idaho made me spend 11 months away from my family. When I was 18 and living in Seattle, my girlfriend got pregnant and miscarried at eight months. This threw my life into a tailspin. I turned to drugs and alcohol and eventually gambling. These addictions utterly controlled my life. I pushed my friends and my family away. For 10 years, my life was lived in a bar, alone. I moved eight times to five different states in three years, and my last move was here to Bozeman. When I met my wife, my patterns continued. In spite of all of my addictions, she agreed to marry me, but my path of destruction now continued, dragging her along with me. My pattern of controlling, people-pleasing, and anger really culminated in January of 2007. I had successfully driven my husband away. He refused to talk to me. I had pushed him so hard and tried to control him so much that he just checked out. We no longer talked at all. We figured that in three and a half months, from January to the middle of April, we talked a total of about four hours. And that was not like four really good one-hour conversations. It was all the highs and goodbyes and we need to pay the bills and take Charlie to the vet kind of conversations. 
It was a horrible living situation. We were basically roommates that didn't like one another, not a married couple. In the middle of April of 2007, our marriage finally fell apart when I went on a fishing trip that uh, led me to Jackpot, Nevada. I spent several thousand dollars of money that was not mine, including money that was needed to pay our mortgage. I came home a week later to an empty house. I had finally pushed everyone away. My wife had left me. I moved back in with my parents at the age of 30, but still my, continu- my addictions continued. I was as lost as I have ever been in my life. After Philip and I separated, a good friend of mine invited me to come with her to Journey Church. And naturally, I invited Philip, because this would be the perfect thing for him. <sighs> Needless to say, I was still very much trying to control him. Little did I know that God was orchestrating all of this, and his plan was much greater and far-reaching than I could have ever imagined. I committed my life to Jesus later that year. After Jen had invited me to church, I started attending on a regular basis. This was the first time I let God into my life for me. I started attending the uh, Celebrate Recovery program, and after hearing testimonies at a Celebrate Recovery meeting at Harvest Church in Billings, I saw what God had done through the program in other people's lives. I wanted that. A couple of months later, I gave my life to Christ, and I have not had a drink or gambled in more than a year and a half. With a heaping helping of God's grace, we moved back in together last November, and we renewed our wedding vows in March. It was a simple ceremony, but it meant more to us than our wedding day because it was a ceremony that dedicated our lives and our marriage to the Lord, and we didn't have that the first time. We now have adjusted our lives to the hierarchy that God gives us, making him first and each other second. Together, we are now leading the Celebrate Recovery Program here at Journey. It's something that he had asked us to do together. We are growing and learning, and he still has so much to show us. The thing that we have realized and are so grateful for is that we are never done. He will always have more refining left to do in us. A week and a half ago at Celebrate Recovery, our topic for the evening was denial. And the thing that has stuck with me from that night, and it's really what I want to share with you today, is that God does not waste our darkness, no matter how dark it is. But we must bring it into the light and give it to him in order for him to heal it and use it. Philip and I both definitely feel like we went through all that we have for a reason. And the reason is so that we can stand up here today and tell you about the healing power of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you. Isn't that cool to hear that? Way to go, guys. And uh, you might have heard them make reference, and maybe throughout this message experience, uh, you've heard us talk about Celebrate Recovery. It's a Christ-centered 12-step program, and uh, they stand ready to stand with you uh, in your battle to overcome your hurts, habits, and hang-ups. They meet every Thursday night, and, uh, and then they interact with each other regularly throughout the rest of the week, supporting and caring about and encouraging each other. In the battle of overcoming that stuff, they meet on Thursday nights, and Philip and Jen will be out in the lobby at the Celebrate Recovery table, invite you to stop by there and 
meet them and ask them how they might be able to serve and help you. This commitment choice, it's a faith decision. At the end of the day, it's a trust in God decision. And see, when you make this commitment choice, just like Phil and Jen did not all that long ago, you actually become a child of the king of the universe, just like that. You become one of God's children. You're adopted and welcomed into his family, all because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. The Bible teaches us that when you make the commitment choice, you're actually putting your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross as payment for your sin. He paid it. He took it. You don't have to see. And you become one of his. You're not just a creation of God anymore. You move into this whole new category of being called a child of God, all because you step across the line of faith in Jesus Christ. How do you, how do, you do that? How do you make a choice, the choice, to commit your life and your will to Christ's care and control? Four things, really. It starts by you accepting God's Son, Jesus Christ, as your Savior. You do that by admitting, I need a Savior. I can't save myself. And then you invite Jesus Christ into your life. The second step in that process is you accept God's Word, the Bible, as your standard. You have God's word then as your manual to live by. The third step is you accept God's will as your purpose, see. You wake up every day in that reality, choosing to see that day as a gift from God. You're not just wandering the planet anymore going, what on earth am I here for? No way. You waking up is actually proof that God has another day or at least another few hours planned for you. A day that is a gift from his hand, filled with great purpose, that comes from God's direction in and on your life. The fourth step in that process is you accept God's power as your strength. You're not just trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps anymore. You're not on your own anymore. You have resident in you God's power. He is your strength, and he gives you the ability, the strength, the courage to face anything and everything that comes your way. And so the only question that's left to be answered is one that you must answer, and it's will you? Will you make the commitment choice? Will you commit all of your life and all of your will to the care and control of Jesus Christ? Not you, not your addictions, not your habits, not your hang-ups, to the control of Christ. Will you choose to commit your everything to the God who not only <clears throat> created you, excuse me, but who loves you enough to change you, who loves you so much that he's not going to leave you in the mess that you're in right now. But remember, to make that commitment choice requires humility. It requires you to humble yourself. You have to scoot all of your pride out of the way and say, this ain't working anymore, folks. And then you scoop up God's love and you scoop up God's grace and you scoop up God's forgiveness and you allow his grace and his love and his forgiveness to seep into every crevice in your life and actually change you from the inside out. So will you? Will you? If you've never ever said yes to that invitation for God's new life, if you've never said yes to God's coming in and forgiving you and turning you in a whole new direction, What's keeping you from making that decision right here, right now, today? And I know that there's a whole bunch of us sitting in this room right now, maybe even the majority who are going, yeah, I've done that already. I've stepped across the line. I want to invite and I want to challenge you to recommit your life today to Jesus Christ. We've all at some point in our life gone a little sideways 
in our relationship with God, haven't we? Some of us have slid, some of us have fallen back, whatever it is you want to call it. We're off the rails with Jesus. And I want to invite you and I want to challenge you today to recommit your life to him, to set your relationship with him right the way that it was meant to be. Will you? Will you? Why don't you take your study guide and set it aside and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and move into a posture of prayer and listening. Just get real quiet with the Lord if you would. Let's pray together. God, when we're real honest, we just have to admit that it is a thrill. It's a blessing to be alive. Thank you so much for giving your life to us. Thank you so much for giving and extending your love to us. We don't want to take any of that for granted. Not even the air we breathe, God. We don't want to take it for granted. It's a gift from you. Our whole lives are an offering to you, God, saying thanks. Thanks for loving us unconditionally. Thanks for promising us that you will give us rest when we give you our everything. Thank you. And God, I can sense in this room right now, there's a lot of tension happening in hearts right now. There are some people right now who are considering a first-time step across the line of faith in you. And if that describes you, I just want to invite you right where you're sitting to say, God, I want a relationship with you. And you don't have to say it out loud. Just say it in the quiet of your heart. God, I want a relationship with you. Come into my life. Please forgive me. As much as I can understand right now, I acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross as payment for my sin. Confess that I am a sinner. And God, I turn from my sin. I leave it behind. I turn from my own path, God, to walk your way. Help me, please, begin this new life. And maybe you're here today and you know that you need to recommit your life to Jesus. You already know the words. Just say, God, please forgive me. God, I'm so sorry for turning my back on you. I'm so sorry for stepping sideways. I'm sorry for being off the rail. Whatever it is for you, just say, God, I'm in with you. God, I turn my back on all of that old stuff. I repent. I recommit. I recommit my life to the journey, God, of giving you everything. And if you prayed with me just then, either one of those prayers, either to make the commitment choice and step across the line of faith in Jesus or to recommit your life because you're off the rails in some category. Those are the biggest, that's the biggest decision of your life. So big that around here we invite you to tell somebody. I'm gonna invite you to do that with me right now. Nobody's gonna embarrass you. Nobody's looking around this room but me. If you prayed with me just then, either one of those prayers, would you just real boldly, don't be timid, no milk toast weasel puke about this deal. Just... Say, I did that. Slip your hand up right now and make eye contact. Yeah, all over the room. Hands all over the room. Just slip them up and you can put them right. Way to go, all of you. All over the room. 
Life is new for all of you. You're starting again. Way to go. God, we don't want to be people who hold anything back from you. We want everything about us to be in your care and in your control, God. Lots of us are carrying stuff that we weren't built to carry. We lay that at your feet, Jesus. Relieve us of that burden. And help us walk in newness and fullness of life. The happiest life possible because, God, we've humbled ourselves to the place of saying, we need you. We can't do this alone. We need you. Jesus, I pray for courage for all of those who just made commitments right here today. That as they re-enter life from this little time of sanctuary, God, that they would sense your tangible presence with them, that you're carrying them along. God, I pray that they would be wise. I pray that they would hunger more and more after you and the things of you. That the stuff that is in their rearview mirror, God, the stuff that kept them from you, God, that it would hold no allure for them whatsoever, God, that they would just put it down, that chains would be broken right here today, that addictions would be ceased once and for all, cold turkey right now. God, we love you so much, and we're so grateful for who you are, for who you are, for what you've done. We're yours, and we're all in with you. And everyone said, amen.